Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? Brooke, it's our first episode back. Season three. Ah! (laughs) I'm so excited. Me too. So today on the podcast, we have two amazing guests that are here to help us kick off season three and teach us and everybody else a little bit about the really horrifying and interesting situation that's happening in Iran right now. And I'm so excited to to learn from them. I'm like overjoyed, I think is the term I want to use. These two women are badasses in their own right. So I can't really wait for them to A, introduce them or B, get them talking or C, just hang out with them for a little longer or D, try not to act like a total idiot in front of them. So (laughs) I have lots of goals for this podcast. Um, but I'm just really excited to bring this topic to our audience. So Can't wait. Yeah, let's get it started. So, Brooke, we're back for season three. We have a lot of ex- exciting themes set up for the season. Um, we are going to be diving much deeper than we did last season into feminist pedagogy and how to Ugh, here for it. do more <laughs> um, inclusive learning, not just in the content that you're bringing into your classes, but also in the way that you're teaching so that not only girls, but all students feel like they have uh, space and opportunity to learn in that environment. So I'm really excited to sort of add those layers to the content that we're sharing with everybody. Um, but I think I'm itching and I think you're itching to dive into the topic of today's episode, which is talking about the situation in Iran. And we have two guests with us and I think maybe briefly we'll turn to them and have them introduce themselves. Um, first we have Dr. Shahla Hairi. She was on our podcast all last spring. Yes, she's an us. alumni of the podcast. She is an alumni. I think there should be, a, she wins the award, actually. Yeah. She's a four-timer. Woo-hoo! Four times. I think people are going to want your autograph. You're part of the, the podcast team now. Would you mind just introducing yourself to our audience? It's lovely to um, be on this uh, podcast again. My name is Shahla Hayri. I'm a professor of anthropology at Boston University. Thank you, thank you, thank you again. And um, I'm really excited because this time I got to bring one of my colleagues at Plymouth State University in. Um, Dr. Feliz Room is the chair of the political science department and I am so excited to have her here. This is her inaugural episode with us, so this is a big deal. (laughs) I am so excited to join the group, inshallah, to alumni of this podcast. (laughs) Definitely, and I am looking forward to coming back again. Yes, yes. I am very pleased to meet you. <laughs> well, um, we are here, unfortunately, despite all the cheers, to talk about something that's that's pretty challenging to talk about, and I think it's something that people are seeing all over the media, and I I think a lot of um, American teachers may not be as familiar with Middle Eastern politics, with the history of Iran, um, with some of the like really interesting dynamics that are playing out in this situation. So um, for anybody who hasn't like been near society anytime recently, um, a woman named Masa Amini, uh, which is her Iranian name, um, she's a Kurdish woman, uh, Sunni woman living in Iran. Uh, In Iran, they have a... um, police force that uh, provides guidance to women in their behavior. I think you're trying to put air quotes around guidance, right? Yes, yes, guidance, air quotes, um, all the things. Um, Two women in how they dress, um, they are like a morality police. And she was taken into custody because her hijab, which is like a headscarf, um, was too loose. And while in police custody, um, she died. And the official report says that she died of a heart attack, um, but her family is unconvinced. Um, They believe that she was brutalized and hurt while in prison and that she was killed by the police um, because of this sort of like corrupt power structure that's created by this morality police, whatever. And this isn't an uncommon story either. This is something that happens really frequently. And 
this is one of the first times that we, I think in America, have really heard about these circumstances. Is that right? Well, it's not necessarily the first time that it's blown up, but it, it feels, at least for recent memory, like a very big deal. And and so, um, you know, and there's, there's a lot of dynamics here. Iran is a primarily... Um, Shia country where majority of the Muslims that are living there, Shia in a global sense are a minority among Islam, but um, there's a huge congregation in Iran where they're a majority. Um, and this, you know, this young woman, in addition to just being a woman with a loose headscarf, is, you know, from the Kurdish minority. She's Sunni living in Iran. And I think it erupted um, so much in the Muslim world as well as... Um, you know, abroad and in, in the West where we are. Um, when like the global feminist community. In the, yeah, because, um, she, you know, be, because there's there's so many layers there, right? There's a, there's a lot of things to, to talk about. So I think, you know, what's exciting here about our two guests, um, Shaha Hiri is a historian and an anthropologist, and she can give us a lot of the context. She also is from Iran originally in her life, and so she can give us some great details um, about about the things that for us it's like whoa this is new information and and I think yes. for a lot of people it's like no that's not that's not new information this has been happening for a long time so I think I'm gonna turn it over to you Shahla to to tell us more about this this history yeah I would be happy to I'm just going to make it quick um, but just to give a brief historical background to the issue of bailing in Iran and the women's participation or women's desires to be part of the larger society and be given a voice and uh, be visible or active in political domain. The first event that we can talk about is at the turn of the century and that is the constitutional revolution of 1905. And uh, this is an amazing uh, really uh, revolution that happened in Iran and the demand was for democracy. And of course, women were part of it, and they participated in some of the demonstrations, some of the discussions, activities, institutions. But ultimately, um, the constitution that was written at the time, due to the influence that the clerics uh, exerted, uh, women did not were not given any right. That means to, the right to vote or to participate in the election? To vote or the right to hold any offices or to um, you know, be a more active, useful, helpful member of the community that they wanted. Of course, women went ahead, they established, uh, uh, you know, schools for girls, which again, you know, confronted some kind of oppositions by the clerics. And I won't go into that, but I just want to focus on the idea of the veil by and, and, and the, the modernity and democracy and the freedom and the women's demands to be part of the civil society. By 19, 1936, uh, the first Pahlavi Shah, Reza Shah, who, was, who came to power uh, in the aftermath of a coup d'etat, um, uh, as part of his modernization uh, projects and programs, and of course, following the Ataturk in Turkey, um, made an order that women have to take off their veils when they appear in public. Now, this was enforced. This was, uh, the women had no options. In other words, again, it was an imposition on them. Women and their families who have always gone out, you know, being uh, a bit covered or, you know, used to having that kind of um, veil around them, you know, um, so they, they just, um, they couldn't venture outside. And if they did, their, um, their veils would be uh, ripped off from their heads. So women were confronted with violence, but the objective of the state was to create a modern society. As some symbols of modernity, women's body became uh, the site on, the, on which they just wrote this whole idea of, all right, you know, we take off her veil, we put a hat on her head and then um, let her loose in society. And of course, I have to say that there were some, um, because of industrialization, women were actually absorbed in some uh, um, factories. So what what dates are those? Because Ataturk is 
1906, the Constitutional Revolution, which, by the way, now that we're at it, the Qajar king is still, it was under the monarchy of the previous uh, dynasty. They actually, finally in 1911, they were able to completely um, um, overwrite the, the constitution. In other words, even though the constitution nominally existed, but nobody really uh, uh, followed the rules and regulations in the constitutions. Again, there were some autocrats and there were all these, you know, the royal court and the, um, the dynasty, the Rajar dynasty was very powerful until the coup d'etat of Reza Shah in 1923, I believe must have been, because the date might be 1921, 22, I'm not exactly certain about the exact date of the coup d'etat. And then he came to power and then he abolished the former monarchy and established uh, the Pahlavi monarchy, right? So by 1936, he felt powerful enough. In fact, he set out to do a lot of um, uh, modernization, you know, try to uh, create an, a modern army, a judiciary, you know, schools, uh, um, you know, birth certificates for everyone. So there was a lot of activities that uh, were in line with uh, a more a more modern society. In other words, and, trying to push Iran from what you know this uh, traditional uh, and rather backward, shall we say, society more into um, a modern state. And for that, he thought that women uh, should be you know on bed. An interesting thing is that he himself was quite um, concerned because he really didn't want his own wife or wives and mother to. To to or or, da or daughters to appear unveiled in public, but eventually he came around accepting that. So he walked out of the palace with his daughters, with his wives, and uh, you know all the women within his uh, household. This was 1936. But the point I want to make is that to take off the veil from women's heads uh, uh, involved violence. Is there like a was there a reasoning at the time of, I mean, you're talking about modernization, but tell me a little bit more about that. So what was the motive to taking the veils off? You know, is that, was it to make progress? Was it to change the opinion of the female? Like what was the the thesis behind the motive to do that? Because they, yeah. In a global sense, I mean, this is post-World War One, and even like right on the precipice of two. And we've, we, you know, the Ottoman Empire has, has crumbled uh, as a result of that. Um, and I, and I, I think all nations during World War One, this is a war of attrition, are, they have to mobilize the entire population in order to Survive. battle that. Yeah. So women here in the States, abroad in Europe, in the Middle East, wherever this war touched, were mobilized to work in factories and things like that. Oh, and okay. so they're, they're trying to pull these women out. And I'm so glad you made this parallel to Turkey because I think it's a really important parallel. Um, and I wanted to share with our teachers that the Stanford History Education Group has an outstanding little mini inquiry lesson plan that you could use about Ataturk's reforms in Iran. I'm sorry, in um, in Turkey. And, um, and I didn't I guess I didn't realize, and I'm so glad you shared with me the connection that this is also sort of playing out in, in Iran. Absolutely, it did. Anatolik became uh, um, an object of admiration by Reza yeah. Shah. He was powerful, he was well-liked, he was trying to modernize his uh, society. Of course, what Anatolik did and Reza Shah didn't do that, and I think that was for the better, is that he didn't change the script. But then, of course, many other good things that Anatolik did in Turkey, the Shah in Iran was not able to do it or did not want to do it. So Feliz is actually from Turkey originally in life. And so I, I feel like this is a great transition to having you sort of chime uh, in. I think uh, when we look at that time, although we are talking about this, this two incredible civilizations, cultures and the deep roots in the history, but we are also looking at that time period as nation creation. Yeah. both in Iran and Turkey, and in some way, uh, brand new, correct me, Shelley, if I am wrong, and uh, Riza Shah changed the name uh, from Persia to 
Iran and Aryan than in 1934, actually. And Turkey, when the uh, Turkish Republic got created in uh, 1923, and both, uh, both countries or the leaders of those countries chose to turn their face to West. Exactly. Uh, modernization, Westernization, and that ideological battle to a certain extent happened over women's bodies and attires. And Turkey went through the similar process and banning uh, veil in public uh, public places as well. But uh, as Sheila was saying, and Atatürk also did this incredible reforms and empowered the women because Turkey was one of the first wow. countries giving suffrage the right to vote to women, local elections in 1930. And wow. uh, we're all not overall 1934. Think about it. Switzerland got it in 1971. And to a certain extent, Reza Shah was imitating and admiring or competing, whichever way you want to put it. But at some point, these things go away, right? So so they these freedoms exist. There's a lot of Westernization. One could see that as progress. But I also want to come back to what what um, Shala was saying, which is also it came about forcefully, right? Like I, a lot of Muslim women that I know pr want to veil and want to cover and to be forced to westernize seems kind of interesting. And at some point there's a backlash, well, right? Absolutely. Anytime that anything is forced, imagine, you know, ab abortion in this country, in the U.S., when it becomes no when you have no choice then it becomes a, a point of uh, discontent. And eventually some people rise against it. But before I get into that, I want to just mention this uh, interesting point that Feliz just made about Reza Shah changing the name. It actually wasn't, he wasn't changing the name. Iran was always Iran, right? Except that foreigners who had gone to Iran and started addressing him, but particularly started with the, with the Greeks, who started referring to Iranians as the Persians by their local name and the name of the dynasty at that time was the Pars, the Persians. So then, you know, outside of Iran, it was always known as Persia because inside the country, everybody knew. Oh, interesting. Invented a name. <laughs> he just told people, "Hey, we're <laughs> this is this is how we'd actually like to be known." <laughs> Come on, man, making it official. That is some officially do it in 1934, at least my uh, my knowledge and maybe the, the name change uh, are ma making the name clear. And to a certain extent for both Atatürk and Reza Shah and cutting ties with the old and taking a step closer to to the West, and because at least for Atatürk, and, uh, cutting ties with the Ottomans and the baggage was important. They were rebranding. <laughs> they were rebranding the whole country. <laughs> and so, so this was the first time that someone had addressed the the veil in politics at this period and said, "Okay, this is where we're going." How did it get to the next phase where it was? you know, more severe and people are wearing Excellent. it. That's what I was going to come to, you know, looking at it again, historically. By 1941, when Reza Shah was abdicated by the Allied forces and his son came to power, he just, you know, let people choose what they wanted to do. So I had my grandmother who was veiled and then, and my grandfather's an Ayatollah and his daughters and grandchildren and all that, nobody put up the veil, right? So we could have people walking side by side in the streets of Tehran, people wearing the veil, the long chador, not, not the scarf, primarily the chador, and wasn't the black, black, black that is now the um, basically the enforced form of yeah. veiling in Iran, long veil. So they could just wear, so it became a matter of choice, right? Until 1979. So from 1941 till 19. So for five years, it was forced, you know, violently women were obliged to take off their veils or just at least appear in public without the veil. But from 1941 till 1979, people could, could dress so, as they pleased. I'll just pause you there. That's a huge chunk of time. 
and multiple generations that have grown up now that are still alive today that remember this time period. So these are individuals that are in the world today of the generations are, 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 you know, the parents or grandparents of the current 20 somethings, 30 somethings that are, are, you know, in the community today. So, so what changed in 1978? Nine. 1979. You can have this uh, historical memory. And, you know, because as I mentioned, you know, people just uh, like myself, you know, I was born before the revolution in Iran. So by 1979, it was a revolution. It was a popular revolution, not an Islamic revolution. That's when, after the revolution and with the hostage crisis, then the, the religious factions, the clerics, were able to consolidate power. And of course, it was the charisma of Ayatollah Khomeini that brought everyone together, that coalesced the, uh, you know, all these different factions under his umbrella. So the religious faction became very popular popular. But for him, he always hated the Shah and Reza Shah. So for him, the greatest uh, achievement, in fact, that's what more or less what he says, the greatest achievement of the establishment of Islamic Republic was to reimpose. And so, so he's so the greatest achievement is to control women. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> and that's what I was going to draw the, the parallel. The first time it was the again, the woman's body that was controlled, that was presumably uh, uh, symbolic representations of modernity. The second time, again, you manipulate women's bodies as an object and put a, a veil on that to have her to represent as an Islamic modesty. Both wow. times, you know, you have this violence against women's bodies and uh, uh, and minds and, and agencies in trying to, uh, you know, force them to do something that they really not don't want it to do it. And what's interesting, we should note here that initially in Iran, after because immediately after the establishment of Islamic Republic, we had the war with uh, Iraq. So there was this imposition and this horrible war of eight years. So many people just held their tongue and, you know, they just went along with the rules and regulations. And in fact, many women owned the veil and appeared in public in drove you know the in you know in the 80s if you had gone to iran there were more women in the service fact uh, sections of the economy than there were men so wow. in, but by 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 owning the veil in fact they became more visible they became mm -hmm. more active so at that time the veil functioned as a different uh, uh, function different. I really like these parallels you're making because I feel like most teachers talk about these events that you're discussing. You know, the especially like if you teach U.S. history, you talk about um, the Iranian hostage crisis right. and the overthrow of the U.S. embassy in Tehran. And um, you talk about, you know, I hope that people, when they teach about the war in Iraq, go back far enough to talk about these events because you you can't really understand the 2003 war in Iraq if you don't understand the U.S. involvement in the wars you're talking about between Iran and Iraq. And you have to go back that far, I think, to, to really grasp it. So there's a lot of parallels here. And I really like this layer that you're adding to it, which is seeing these shifts in political power as also shifts in control over women right yeah and and and, ha and having these like really direct impacts on on women's lives Feliz you look like you are itching to jump in here so <laughs> in both cases as uh, Shala was saying women resisted and uh, uh, and in the second one uh, uh, Iran Iraq war provided the perfect opportunity for uh, Iranian regime saying, okay, now they can execute it the way they wanted to. And if you resist, it doesn't matter why you are uh, resisting. You are a threat to national security. We need wow. to unite right now. So Iranian regime used that war perfectly to suppress. Uh, women's resistance to uh, forced veil this time around. Very good point. And as I said, they put up with it because as you said, for national security, national unity, okay, at some point they said, we'll just go along with it. Many resisted it, many didn't like it, 
many tried to you know play with the way they wore the scarves even at that time so there wasn't a unanimous response from the women it's it's always complex it's always diverse and we have yeah. to understand many women do want to wear the way you mean women didn't think all all the same they all didn't have one brain <laughs> you think all women weren't the same at that time they just all didn't agree on it like that's the thing that kelsey and i draw to a lot is that we're trying to diversify the opinions that we present in different places in history that it's not just one woman's experience that we just assume was all women's experience. And so I, th I imagine both of you pull from resources in your classroom to show the diversity of, of women and of people of different time periods to really display this. But, you know, this is a really remedial example of it. But think about when Americans were asked to wear masks for a pandemic and how differently people responded to that. I, and that is all genders. That is across. That's a national ask by your government to do this one thing, and think how yeah, outraged. It's not even like stereotypical. It's like, not. Like we're gonna target this gender. Yeah, it wasn't right? trying yeah. to oppress any one group. It was like just blanket. Let's do the right thing. And how vividly and ferociously people fought against it. Now, now take away half of that, and it's just women. And you're asking them to do this one thing. You could see. And now you can feel that parallel really deeply of like why this would be such a challenge for individuals for many years who didn't have to do this mm -hmm. and weren't asked of this in their nation. And to point out the difference, it's not medical necessity. Right. right. Yeah. And there's no there was no like, hey, it's medically been proven that wearing a scarf on your head keeps you warmer. It's like, <laughs> OK, great. Yeah. Like, let me put that I on. It is also time to emphasize. The, this movement led by you, young people and women, it is not against Islam. Right. So I think we need to make it clear. It is that, yes, among the, those people that are secular believers too, and there are very devout Muslims too. The, the resistances to that imposition and trying to control women's bodies, women's autonomy. And that's why uh, from all around the Middle East and, uh, and the world, women from all walks of life and uh, from atheists to very devout Muslims, joining them, showing support. So it's right. really important to emphasize that this is not an anti-Islamic movement. I mean, there are two places in the Quran where there are some references to the veil. One is in, one is in relations to Prophet Muhammad's wives, and basically doesn't say wear the veil. It says stay in your home, stay secluded, don't come out, and that's because of the political situation at the time when you know his household was becoming too crowded too many women were there too many people were going there to besiege prophet muhammad and of course he had become such a beloved uh, uh, leader then not, another uh, uh, ayah re re refers to the, the veil and that says tell women believing women that when they leave home to to pull their garments over their bosoms and doesn't use the word veil. Hijab has never been used in the Quran in reference to women. So it's as a way of respect, not as a way of punishing women. Even nowhere in the Quran says if women don't wear the veil, which of course is not there, that they should be punished. Yeah, and actually I've... I've seen examples from, you know, throughout the Middle Ages and into early modern history of women in the West actually veiling maybe even more than, than Muslim women. So like the, the it's more of just like a, a norm in those in those geographic Islamic and you see it everybody as well and it is uh, uh, Shala was mentioning it is for women it's about respect and it is also very much used by upper class yeah someone i might be wrong but someone had shared this with me in a writing course when i was in college um who who wore a hijab and um someone had asked her a question about wearing it and and she made this comment and said i actually feel bad for american women and i said oh this will be interesting she goes you're objectified all the time for your bodies for the way that you look what you wear what you how you present that is not me or my culture, and I don't have to 
feel that pressure because I am honored for my mind and how I present because this is how I choose to dress and, and it's more respectable. And it was like, had never heard that thought process before. That's very good. That's, that's your choice and her choice. Exactly. So as long exactly. as it is her choice to wear the veil, it's respected. Exactly. It's respected. It ought to be respected. You know, nobody should rip off the veil from her head. But for the same, by the same token, if I don't want to wear the veil, if another woman doesn't want to wear, you know, they can't just come and say, no, you have to do it because men cannot control themselves. I always say in my classes that to force women to wear the veil is an imposition. It's an in, you know, in, indignity on the part of the women. But it's an, it's an insult to men. You know, like the peasant women, the tribal women, they don't wear the scarf. I mean, they right. wore the scarf, not the veil, the way that it's now yeah. imposed on women. The issues so, that discuss the imposition is the uh, is the problem, and as long as it is women's shoes. But but as we have been talking about, especially when Shala gave the history of it, uh, and actually this symbol veil turning to a symbol is by imposition of not to wear. When you impose that, you are also taking away a chunk of big portion of the population out of the education system. Right. When you say that they cannot go to school, women, if they want to uh, cover and they believe in and they say schools are public and then you cannot wear that. Well, it's very problematic. And actually, when Shah did that, it took those conservative uh, women, women out of the equation. And then actually, uh, uh, the Iranian regime imposed it. And women from those said, OK, now it is safe to come out go to school. And we are talking about 60% of Iranian wow. uh, uh, university grads are women. But mm. that interestingly became a problem for the regime. The, among the graduates from the university, 60% of them are women. Yes, because yes. When those women came up, got educated, and they are not satisfied with the laws and system as is. And now they are quite Muslim, but they are participating. Yeah, interesting. So bring us up to, we we sort of, the last sort of timeline thing, we were in the 80s, but obviously we've got- Higher education. Higher education. They are educated, they are motivated, they are Muslim, and they don't like the system they're graduating into. Um, what has happened, you know, it's, I, I understand they sort of put aside maybe some protests through the war period, but obviously things have been brewing for a long time since the 80s for the explosion that we're seeing today. So have women been pro, like have there been other protests that exploded in the last decade or two um, that maybe we could refresh memories on? Yes, they have. I mean, even again, to go back to the constitutional revolutions, women did have demonstrations there. And throughout, they, they participated, they demonstrated, they demanded. We get to um, 19, um, uh, 1953, when there was a CIA coup d'etat in Iran. Women participated, women demonstrated in the streets of Tehran. Um, in uh, 1979, women came to the streets in droves. And of course, they demanded freedom. Little did they know that there's a factionalism between the very religious ones and the very uh, leftist one, and neither one of whom thought that women should at this point demand to be part of the, uh, you know, civil society and uh, having the uh, uh, political demands. Then, you know, we have throughout Islamic, I mean, just as, you know, Ayatollah Khomeini ordered the women wear the veil, the huge number of women came to the streets of Tehran. And I never forget, I wasn't in Tehran, but I saw it on in the screen, I mean, it's snowing and these people, these women are walking and women with the hijab, with the black veil and without the veil, and they're talking about freedom, their rights to freedom. So then that was another time, in 2009, the so-called Green Revolution, there was another demonstrations and all throughout. So now this time with Mahsa, there was just the, you know, what is the expression, the straw that the broke 
the camel's back. No more. Yeah. No more indignities. Because mm. it wasn't just tell women, wear your scarf and walk out. If you had a slight the way of not really wearing your veil, according to them properly, you would be dragged into the these vans and thrown into the vans by force by, uh, you know, this man. Or And they had some women, you know, who just helped them take them to God knows where to do what, what you know, who knows what, and then let them out. So then they just thought enough is enough. And does it also, you know, so obviously it, it's terror on these women. You know, it's terror... It's terrorizing them, but it also affects their family. Many men and families participated in yeah. these demonstrations. So in that sense, Feliz is right. That is no longer just the veil, but all the pent-up frustrations, all the angers, uh, the, all the things that they did not have. The economy is in shambles, as you said. As you said. All these sanctions all this animosity with the neighborhood, with America, with other uh, countries, you know, I mean, we need to live our lives. You know, you only get one chance to live your life. So enough is enough. And what is important, as I said, men participated in that. Yeah, that's what I was I was going to say is a lot of movements that we've talked about on this podcast and ones that we've read about throughout history women are fighting and, and they're doing this on a lot of solo acts. It's a lot of just just women, just female gender running and running and running. And it's typically when the male counterpart comes in and not necessarily fights or fights for them, but bolsters them up and says, go, we're right behind you and we're done with this and we will help get you where you need to go too because it change has to happen. And so that's what I'm noticing with this current situation is how many men and families, older generations are getting in the fight. It's not just the 30-somethings. It's not just the 40-somethings or the 20-somethings that are usually the revolutionary spirit. But there's multiple generations that are now like, enough. We're done with this and we're all in it. When she was uh, captured by the um, morality police they had no idea whether she was kurdish uh, kurdish or sunni or whatever definitely her women identity was the target but uh, when we the protesters has been going on and uh, and as we were just talking about men joined the and there are strikes going on, there are boycotts going on, workers are there. And uh, people are asking about why are we killing our children? That's right. very emotional. That's very powerful. They are our children, they are saying. But then going back to Masa Amini, as we mentioned, she was Iranian. She definitely Iranian, no doubt about it. But she was... Kurdish Iranian. And so her name, Kurdish name was Gina, which means life, sadly and ironically. Uh, and, all. and when you listen her uh, uh, family's interviews, they are using both names. And when you listen the Kurds around the world, they are talking about, please, let's not dismiss that identity as well, right. because Kurds in Iran, in Turkey, in Syria, in Iraq, they are suffering. They deal with poverty. They deal with discrimination uh, and in all those countries. And the other part of it is also they are emphasizing this, the slogan of this protest, uh, women, life, freedom. And actually it started by the Kurdish freedom movement hmm. and uh, connected to Turkey, interestingly. And in the first time, uh, Kurdish women and then joined by Turkish women in Turkey, March 8, 2006, were using that slogan in Kurdish, Jin Jian Azad, Jivan Azadi. So, uh, and uh, very much connected to insurgency terrorists, however you define it, Tur Kurdish uh, Workers' Party. And uh, so they are saying, of course, uh, 
uh, we this slogan belongs to all women around the world. But Everyone. let's stop this. Yeah, let's stop dismiss that that Kurdish contribution to it, our sacrifices that comes with that too. Uh, so uh, so they take a different stand a little bit. Uh, of course, her name was Mahsa, partially because the family was not allowed to officially give her a Kurdish name. That was the struggle of many Kurds in Turkey for it. That. Wow. That's why the name Gina, there is a gender component, there is an ethnic component, there is a poverty component and religious component and uh, she being also Sunni too. So it's very, very multi. Yeah. Well, and I love that this is, you know, in so many ways, this woman from a couple of minority backgrounds within Iran and, you know, not only have lots of people within Iran, but around the world come to protest on her behalf and the behalf of everybody who's faced these sort of, you know, indignities. Um, but, you know, we've seen people cutting their hair. We've seen them burning their hijabs. We, you know, men too, even like buzzing their heads, just getting rid of their hair. Like, if this is what you're after, it's gone, you know, if you want to police that. Um, as of today, about 14,000 Iranian people are in prison for protesting, um, and that includes children. And, and not that Masha was a, ch a child, um, she was 22 years old, but she's, you know, I teach 22-year-olds. They're, they're little people to me. <laughs> and um, and I think it's it's just really overwhelming to think 14,000, like in, in the recent protests we've had in the States, I don't think we've had that, like even close but, yeah, to I that Yeah, I doubt number there's a comparison. But there's also, prison. do we have a stat on how many people have also died after her as well? Because I feel yeah, like that. 350. Yeah, that is wild. At least 41 of them are children. The majority are children. They are very young people. And yeah, I, want, I want to come back to this um, slogan, which I think is an amazing slogan. And perhaps that's why it has resonated so strongly across the borders uh, in the East, in the West, South and North. Life, women, life, freedom. It's just amazing. And, and, you know, like, in, in fact, it has preempted a lot of uh, other slogans that had more a sense of masculinity in them. But this one has really a sense of life in it. Women are the life givers. Mm. And it's women, life, and then with that come freedom. That whole um, symbolic uh, protest yes. to cut one's hair, of course, cutting hair according to the Iran, in the Iranian tradition, pre-Islamic tradition, was a sign of mourning because hair is a woman's beauty, right? And that's one reason they want to cover that. So um, uh, mothers whose uh, young child, ch children would die, then they would cut their hairs. Lover whose um, beloved would die or for whatever reason or get killed, mm. they would cut the hair. But in this particular case, it wasn't just as a mourning sign for Maso and a lot of other young people, Nika and Sarina and all these beautiful young kids who um, killed, I mean, they were like 18, 17, 18 year old kids who died and everybody mourned their death by cutting their hairs. But it was also symbolic of saying that if this hair is giving you so much trouble that I have to cover it, let's just then get it off, you know, take yeah. it off and yeah. just, you know. Um, A troubling um, development that I'd love to ask the two of you about is the recent, as of November 6th, 227 Iranian lawmakers have urged the judiciary to prosecute these 14,000 people that are in prison, um, and the death penalty is not off the table in this instance. And to me, that's that's horrifying. It's right? like a humanitarian crisis. What, what are your reactions to that? To me, that just seems... You know, like we're in a in a period in the U.S. where the death penalty is being debated as even like if we should ever use it, let alone for free speech and demonstrations of protest. But so, also a mass amount of people. Like right. that I mean, is a so huge number. To even open the door to that, and and to that's my genocide. One of the people, you know, it's I don't know that they they actually did anything violent, um, and yet earned the death penalty. These are you know, the representatives 
who have to defend the constituency. Do they have enough support? Like, or are they just expecting to be voted out? I mean, presumably we have the institution, I mean, the democratic institutions of, you know, the, the, the parliament, the majlis, uh, the judiciary, the presidency. But in all these, for all these institutions, there are all these intervening non-constitutional institutions that are not in the constitution, or maybe later on they were added to the constitution. There's the Guardian Council. Mm-hmm. The Guardian Council decide who who qualifies to be uh, a representative who doesn't. So wow. these guys that have been qualified, presumably, are the ones that are selected by a particular, by a select body, which is very exclusivist, right? Yeah, so you can so really vote, but your vote is between a few people that are approved by this council. And many few people voted, uh, voted particularly for these representatives, the president. Why would you when it's rigged? It's Why like- would you? Exactly. Exactly. Is- you know, I mean, uh, in for, I mean, in the previous uh, cycle of the election, some women tried to recruit a lot of women, you know, the in, from the civ- various civil societies and um, push them to get elected to have more female representative wow. in the parliament. But but many of them got disqualified. Nonetheless, 18 of them got elected, which is a pretty good number. I have to say, I am uh, really, really worried. It is gonna get worse because Iranian regime's survival depends on this. Their legitimacy depends on, on this. So they are not going to let go, they cannot. So they are going to get more violent. You already see the signs of it. And they are already calling, look, uh, French intelligence is in, involved. Israelis and Americans are involved. This is actually Kurds with ISIS working. We need to stop. Azeris are separatists and they are involved. So it is our country's survival. They are all traitors. And they, what those protesters are doing is war against God. So we need to defend God. So they are going to keep using those language and then they are going to attack. They, I don't see them giving any concessions again because it is their uh, survival. I have to say when at the beginning of uh, November, Joe Biden came out and said, we are going to free Iran. And I'm like, oh my God, how could you say that? Don't you dare. That's the worst thing you can do to protesters. And then he quickly fixed it. Iran is going to free themselves kind of thing. So what can West do? What can international community do? Because it's very important uh, to finding the, of course, we support them, but and the way we support them, Iranian regime will use that, turn those protesters into calling them traitors and uh, working with us. Mm. Uh, I am also uh, very concerned simply because uh, when you look at the Middle East, these kind of protests happens and people join, look at Arab Springs and afterwards. So when protests turn into something to a certain extent can succeed when they have organizations, when they have leadership, some structures instead of coming and disappearing. But the problem is if they have organization, if they have leaders, then the regime will go after them. Actually, the head of the judiciary in Iran said, okay, but are your the grievances? Let's talk. At the same time, he was saying, judiciary, don't be nice to these guys if they come into your court. Go after them. So they will show to So where is this process protest gonna go? For me, the only hope is, and we see the signs of within the Iranian regime and elites, and you were talking about those families, and within them, if there is a split and a break, the, uh, and then maybe something happened, but prote- protest itself and the West cannot shape it, cannot no, change no.
I couldn't agree with Felice more. I mean, she said it, all that I wanted to say. But uh, just what I wanted to add to that, um, maybe as an Iranian and having my um, wishful thinking, overwhelming my <laughs> realistic uh, um, um, idea, you know, um, sentiment and knowing what is happening in Iran, absolutely the way that Felice said that, I just want to repeat women, life, freedom. Mm-hmm. I think this, there is a huge power in that uh, uh, slogan. And um, I, I will, I will see that continuing and that, that, that uh, light, that fire that is lit under that whole idea is going to, to continue. Might just get stifled for a while and it will, as I agree with Felice uh, with what she said, because the very uh, survival of the regime depends on being violent and being, uh, um, you know, uh, 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 you know, the, having more and more young people um, accused of um, uh, enmity with God, and therefore, you know, deserving yeah. the um, the death penalty. But really, I, I deep down in my heart, I believe in women, life, freedom. I have never ever seen a movement like this. Yeah particularly for women. And I don't want to say this is the women's movements right now. I don't want to say this is just there for veil, as Fili said in the beginning. It is you know, all encompassing and it includes both men and women. But um, it really is uh, um, an, an unusual, unprecedented movement. We've never seen even the suffrage movements, women's movements in other yeah. parts of the world, nothing like what's happening in Iran. And for that matter, I think, despite the hardship, I think um, women life freedom. Let's listen to our young. Let's yeah, listen to our future. And more and more, I hear that that gives me hope. Brooke, women, life, freedom. I think that's women, a life, great freedom. Theme for I'm, season three I'm in to it. Like lead us through here. Oh my gosh, I could talk to both of you forever. I'm so Thank jealous, you. Kelsey. You get to work with this individual, and we've had this is our alumni on our podcast oh, too. Yeah. Four, four, Way four. to kick off we season could be three. Like SNL and maybe give her a jacket if she comes. Oh my on gosh. For five, so yeah, maybe she can <laughs> she can roast us after a while. You're doing fantastic work. I just want to really um, congratulate you for. Uh, continuing with this very important project. Well, thank you. Uh, pleasantly, so beautifully. So just all the power. I really appreciate it. We appreciate We appreciate it because you're doing the good work too. And yeah. that's why we're here. We're just trying to get the word out. Shella, it was wonderful to Wonderful chat. to meet you. I'm going to stay in touch with you, please. I'm going to see if I can. It's happening. And women connecting. Yes. This is what we love. <laughs> Thanks, Kelsey. Thanks, Brooke. See you next time. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.